views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. Well, here we are. I don't know how we got here exactly, but here we are halfway through the year. It seems like there has been so much going on in the world, the economy, the financial markets. Sometimes it feels like everything's just speeding up and we are jumping from one crisis to the next. First, it was inflation, egg shortages, baby formula shortages. Then the Federal Reserve came in and started aggressively hiking interest rates. And of course, we had those massive bank failures, starting with Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank, and First Republic, and the mess, the big mess in Washington about the debt ceiling. And all of a sudden, icing on the cake, we had worries about the U.S. dollar. Well, we will talk more about the dollar in just a sec. But for now, I just want to say I am feeling a little bit fatigued by all this negativity and pessimism and doom and gloom. And so today, I wanted to be a little ray of sunshine, wanted to just be a bearer of some good news. Despite all this negativity, the stock market's doing pretty well. It's actually been going up the last seven months since bottoming out last fall. I think this is just a karmic payback for all of 2022. Despite the Fed hiking short-term interest rates, long-term rates like those tied to mortgages, they've stopped going up. They've actually floated down just a little bit, and that's pretty good news for diversified portfolios. As for that dollar, it's true. It's true, the dollar has dropped a little bit so far this year, but the sudden frenzy, and there has been a frenzy around the dollar's demise is, I think, greatly exaggerated. And to help explain why that is, our friend Andy Smith is here. Andy is an executive director at Edelman Financial Engines. We love having him here to break it all down. Andy, nice to see you. Gene, always great to see you. Can we give our listeners, a little more context around the dollar. I I know there are things happening on the global stage, Brazil, Russia, China, deciding to conduct trades in their own currencies rather than in dollars. This has caused a bit of a firestorm 
It's led some people to claim that the U.S. dollar is going to lose its status as the world's primary reserve currency. Some people have taken it a step further. They're saying, oh, my goodness, the sky is falling. The dollar is going to collapse. Where are we really? Uh, so I don't think we're, we're quite at the uh, end of Animal House with Kevin Bacon right in the streets all as well. Um, <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, it's a, but it's a, polit- it's, a, it's a popular political boogeyman. We, it, it comes up every once in a while. Uh, about seven years ago, six, seven years ago, um, left-leaning news outlets were talking about, you know, that the dollar was doomed to, um, you know, because of the trade war with China. Um, now it's, you know, news outlets on the right are kind of saying that the sanctions on Russia are going to be the ones that's going to cause a flight from the dollar. So it's on both sides of the political aisle. We get this every once in a while. Um, There's one kind of classic example uh, I saw from a client once. It was the same email. And all they did, it was maybe five, six, seven years apart. All they did was change the name of the president, the secretary of the treasury, and the Federal Reserve chairman. So you, you can see that it's not necessarily the wailing and gnashing of teeth that's out there. You just have to be able to kind of, you know, step back and understand what you're seeing right now. So total collapse, not likely, but I'm sensing, yeah. I'm sensing yeah. a but. Yeah, there, there, there's a but. I mean, I, I like to talk in terms of what's possible versus what is probable. Uh, you know, is it possible that all of these things that are going to happen or that, that places talk about are going to happen? Yeah, it's possible. Is it probable? No. It's true that the U.S. dollar's market share has kind of shrunken a little bit here over the past few decades, it still accounts for like 60% of global currency reserves. The next three biggest currency reserves right now, euro, the yen, and the British pound. But each of those are just fractions of what we see with that 60% of what the US dollar commands right now. China is a big player in these conversations. It's no secret that China is the challenger to the U.S. with regards to global supremacy. And when it comes to currency status, I guess my question is, where does the Chinese currency, the renminbi, is that the right pronunciation, right? Where, Where does it rank? Versus the U.S. dollar. So here's the funny thing about that. You know, all of these people, all of these outlets claiming that the Chinese currency is going to replace the U.S. dollar. According to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the renminbi represents 3% of global currency reserves. Russia holds one third of that. So you have, once you start to put the numbers against this, all of these qualitative stories kind of take a different, it's a little bit different air that you start to see. I love when we dig into the data and the data actually gives us a picture that we can feel a little bit better about. That happens a lot with people and their personal finances. But what it's saying in this situation is these fears of China overtaking the U.S. when it comes to currency, they're just way overblown. Yeah, they're way overblown. They're super interesting, right? It, It captures clicks, it captures eyeballs, media loves it because they can capture more audience. And then when you have bigger audiences, you sell more advertising. But I will take it a step further. You know, when you talk about China um, and the renminbi possibly, you know, becoming the, the global reserve here, China is such a long way from overcoming a lot of, um, you know, two, I would say, two seriously high hurdles right now. The first is they need to make substantial reforms on currency controls. They are so far away from that. The other thing that they have to do is that they really have to start moving towards a market-based exchange rate. 
those two things have to happen before you start to see these other dominoes fall when it comes to global currency reserves. Which is not to say that there's nothing to worry about when it comes to the dollar. I mean, a moment ago, you mentioned the fact that the dollar has lost some of its reserve status. If it's not losing it to the Chinese currency, then who's taking it? Um, Yeah. And let me back up real quick. I'm no Pollyanna. I'm not standing in a pile of, you know, horses. That's a nice way to say it. Yes, a nice <laughs> pile of daisies. So this isn't like the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming over the horizon right now. This is also me not saying that everything is is absolutely great. These currency reserves right now, they're not going to China. They're not going to Brazil. They're not going to Russia. They're not going to the euro. They're not going to the yen. They're not going to the British pound. They're going to these smaller countries, Australia. Uh, Canada, Sweden, South Korea. So we are seeing a shift, but it's not necessarily the apocalyptic shift that a lot of these outlets want us to sing. I consume, I think you know this, I consume a lot of media um, on a daily basis. And I haven't read a ton about Australia and Canada and Sweden. Is it fair to say that people who are pushing these stories, perhaps through social media, don't know what they're talking about, or maybe they have some sort of ulterior motive at play? Yeah, I can't speak to intent, um, but there's always, I think that if you understand why a particular outlet is pushing a particular story, that helps to give some color to what you're actually seeing. So I, I like clients, you know, we joke, I say, put the TV on, but have it on mute right? Have it be moving wallpaper more than anything else. Um, stay informed, stay involved. I'm not saying put, you know, bury your head in the sand and not read what's going on around you. You just have to understand what it is you're reading, what they're trying to accomplish by pushing this out, and then what you're going to do about it now that you have this information. So this reminds me of the game that I used to play with my kids in the supermarket when you'd walk through the aisles and you'd see all the tabloids and we we would play this game where they would say, can you believe this magazine? And they'd point to time and I would say, yes, you can believe that magazine. And then they'd point to, I don't know, In Touch or one of the other tabloids or the National Enquirer. And I would say, no, you can't trust that. And eventually... Fast forward, and my daughter actually took a course in media literacy at college, which was necessary at the time. But it's an important perspective to keep in mind that you you can't trust everything you read these days. You can't trust everything that you read these days. So you have to understand what it is that you're looking at, what narrative maybe they're trying to push, and then what you're going to do about this. Fact of the matter is the U.S. dollar is not going to default. It's not going to completely collapse overnight. So all of these places that want you to sell everything that you have, buy gold, buy cabins in the woods, bake beans, you know, all these other things. <laughs> I like baked oh, beans. I love baked beans too, but I'm not going to sell, you know, everything that I got to, to buy that. But you have to understand what is actually happening in these news stories. Again, it, we're not going to see this overnight collapse. So all of these places that you're looking at and they want you to, again, sell everything that you have and buy the gold, buy the coins, bullion, whatever it is, be aware of it, but don't necessarily rush to judgment and rush to action. Fact of the matter is, since the financial crisis of 2008, what, the U.S. dollar has increased 56% up through its highs last year. So once you understand the quantitative numbers behind all of these qualitative stories – 
you start to have a much broader and, and more understandable picture of what it is that you might need to be doing right now. So everybody can just breathe a little bit. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll have an investment expert to talk more about the economy, the markets, and the continuing story. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. I am with financial planner Andy Smith from Edelman Financial Engines. We're talking about stocks and bonds, the U.S. dollar, markets, investments. There was big news at EFE back in March. Your firm had a change in chief investment officers. Tell us about that. That's correct. So our longtime CIO, chief investment officer, Christopher Jones, he has transitioned to a strategic advisor role. Uh, Chris joined the firm all the way back, you know, when it first started. He was the third employee. During his 26-year tenure, he helped grow uh, firm assets up to $242 billion. And then as in his transition, we appointed a new CIO, Neil Gilfetter, and uh, just a tremendous guy. Fantastic. And, and fortunately for us, we've got Neil joining us right now. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Neil is with us, Andy, from his office remotely in Santa Clara. And it's been nice getting to know you a little bit before we did this particular show. You've been on the show before, so thanks for coming back. Tell us a little bit about you and your history and how you got started in the markets. Yeah, so when I was a kid um, back in London, um, I was fascinated by economics. Um, you know, what made the economy do well? What made it do badly? And the you know the eighties in the UK was a, a kind of a bumpy decade. Um, so you know, I got interested in that. And then when I was in secondary school, I started to um, take economics classes, and I really became fascinated with it. And I, you know, I was uh, kind of an economics nerd at that point. When I went to university, I pursued that further. And, you know, went to grad school, too, to study economics. What got me interested in the markets was seeing that the economy grew in certain ways, but the financial markets were key to funding uh, capital growth and basically what drives the economy. So my interest, I think, transitioned from the economy purely to finance, in a, you know, is how, how markets actually contribute to the economy. And, you know, here I am uh, 25 years later. Well, you've learned a lot, undoubtedly, over those 25 years, over a quarter of a century. I and mean, what are the most important lessons as you would distill them for individual investors that you could share with us at this point? Yeah, certainly. So I've been through in my career um, highs and lows in the market. 
um, soon after I started the dot-com bubble burst, then, you know, the late 2000, um, 2008, uh, we have the global financial crisis. And, you know, we've had a series of events that, since when markets go up and down. And every time that's happened, there have been voices saying this time is different. Either things are going to go up forever at an unprecedented rate, or this is terrible, things are never going to recover. And really, every time it's shown that, you know, that's not true. Things are generally neither as good nor as bad as they seem at any moment. And so keeping your focus on your long-term goals is vital. So that's one thing. The second thing is it's hard to judge whether you're investing well or badly without understanding what your goals are. So your portfolio should reflect your conversations with a planner about what you want to achieve. And that involves things like horizon, mm -hmm. um, you know, the type of goal you want, the certainty you want in achieving those. And that then leads to your choice of portfolio. But there isn't really in abstract a good portfolio that you can judge aside from the context of your financial plan. You can't do it in a vacuum, in other words. Exactly. Neil, I talk with clients all the time about kind of what we do, how we do it, how we look at things. Now that we have, you know, the actual voice uh, behind the, the, the process, talk about what our investing process is. Yeah, so our process is unique. It was born out of uh, working with Bill Sharp, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And the name Engines in the company's name refers to the algorithms that we use so we build in-house a detailed model of the financial markets, and that looks at the risk of them, the long-term return of them. And you can build portfolios based on those engines. And so when we build a portfolio, we take a ton of information in about the markets, and we forecast based on these. And these are complicated equations and solving those equations, things that people can't do in their heads. Even the brightest people couldn't do this, which is why algorithms are so important. So that's about constructing the portfolios. Equally important is how we use these engines to create forecasts. So as you know, the world's uncertain. You don't know with certainty what's going to happen over a year, five years, 10 years. What we do is to use the algorithms to come up with forecasts at a detailed level. So we use what's called Monte Carlo simulations, which is we take what you're holding in your portfolio unique to you and run simulations of this so that you can see that over the period of your goals, your horizon for retirement, you can see what could happen if markets are good, better than normal, what's a typical outcome, and importantly, you know, if markets don't do well over that period, what does your downside risk look like? And we think it's vital to understand the range of outcomes so that you can see, you know, with actual confidence, what your possible retirement could look like. So beneath what we do is a lot of sophistication in terms of both creating the portfolios um, you invest in and forecasting the outcomes that you, you may have once you retire. Talk also about how often you're looking at things. This isn't just kind of a one day, a quarter sort of thing. And then we move on and then, you know, just kind of update at random. Yeah. Talk about the timing of this work behind the scenes there. Andy clearly knows yeah. how the sausage I'm is just, made. I'm just setting them up for, <laughs> yeah, for greatness here. But okay. yeah, talk about the yes, timing of this. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. So we take new information in every month, and that information is put through all the systems. So we revise all the forecasts uh, that underlie portfolios and um, you know retirement income forecasts. So that goes in every month. Now, 
we deliberately only change things smoothly. You know, markets jump day to day, month to month, even year to year, but you don't want to jump around in response to those. So this is a gradual process. And once you have a portfolio with us, we actually review that um, on a daily basis in order to see, does it need tuning up? So we run the process frequently. It's a robust process with new data every month, but consciously, we don't want to make the thing too jumpy day-to-day, month-to-month. I've heard you say, Andy, and I may have even heard you say, Neil, that the goal with your portfolios is to get the most return with the least amount of risk. That appeals to me. Can you explain that? Yeah, certainly. So when you work with a planner, you know, you get an assessment with them of what the type of risk you want to take is. And this is a crucial thing. This is about understanding both your sort of psychology about how much risk you can take, um, how it relates to those goals. So once you establish that risk, our job in investment management to do is to make sure you get the best return for that risk over the horizon. And that involves making sure that we have a portfolio that is exposed to the different drivers of risk and return over the horizon you're looking at. So that involves, you know, holding U.S. stocks. It involves holding international stocks. There's a portion of bonds in there, both corporate bonds and treasury bonds. And you put that together. And the idea is you want to achieve as much return as you can for the level of risk. Risk is something, think of it as an expenditure. You don't want to have risk just for its own sake. You want to get the best bang for your buck in terms of the risk you're taking. And to that end, so when when clients call and they will ask questions, why are we doing this? Why, you know, as we make an investment shift or as we change allocations, sometimes the clients are saying, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you trading in light of what we're seeing here with all of this? We have the luxury of having you with us. We have the luxury of having people giving them the ability to hear directly from you why things happen or why things don't happen. Just high level, help clients and and other investors understand why you don't always trade just because XYZ just happened there in the markets. Yes, so... The reason we do that gets to the sort of the root of how we think about investing, right? So our view is that generally speaking, the best information about the future performance of an asset is reflected in its current price. So we'll turn, I think, a bit later to banking. But if you think about the way the banking stocks have gone down, the price they're at reflects all the information that's available out there. And it reflects people in the market putting real money in and determining that level. So by the time news actually hits, that's priced in there. So it's not, you know, when stuff has gone down, that reflects the information at that point. You don't want to sort of chase returns on that because our information shows that that generally doesn't work. It's extremely hard to forecast which asset classes are going to do better than others. Um, You know, markets don't always get it right, but the point is not that. The point is it's extremely hard to second guess what markets are doing. And that's the reason 
we're not going to tune um, things to try and jump into asset classes because we think at this moment, they're the ones that are going to, you know, rock it up versus others. In other words, I mean, what I what I think I hear you saying is that you're protecting investors by helping them get out of their own way. When that client that Andy was mentioning called and said, oh, my God, this bank stock dropped. It's a screaming buy. You may say not so fast. Exactly. Yes. It's tempting to respond to news. You know, news organizations by their nature uh, want to grab your attention. And so there are these stories uh, about, you know, stocks falling dramatically. Does that make them a buying opportunity? Not really. You know, there's a sort of a behavioral bias in here to think that, you know, things are going to go down and bounce up. History is littered with examples of things that went down and didn't bounce up. And what's going to happen to an individual bank or a part of the banking sector in general, is actually unknown. And the price at the moment reflects the best expectations of what's going to happen. So, you know, Silicon Valley Bank stock went down. And down and down and down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't a buying opportunity. So, you know, there's lots of counterexamples to that. And of course, some stocks do bounce up. Let's talk about the economy overall, the markets right now. What, what is your assessment of where we are economically? Yeah, so since coming out of the pandemic, being an economic forecaster has been a hard job. You know, one of the most overused words at the moment is unprecedented, but it genuinely was unprecedented. You sort of take a large chunk of economy and put it on hold, you put it, you know, in a freezer. And as you come out, it's hard to think, you know, understand what's going to go on. So there are a few things that surprised people, you know, inflation stuck around, jumped and stuck around more than people thought it would. Um, You know, the view was that supply chains would untangle and we'd get back to normal. So that's one thing. The second is that consumers came out of the pandemic spending a lot. And so there was a lot of demands. You had supply and demand imbalances. Also, the labor market was tight. Um, So you've got this unusual situation where labor markets have been tight. It's been quite hard to find workers for a lot of jobs. So all of those things are sort of playing, um, there's an interplay. And looking at those things is the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve is trying to get to the ideal. So the ideal you could think of is economic growth without inflation, right? In that situation, companies are going to do great. They're trying to get us to that point. And it's a tricky thing because they're trying to bring down inflation without creating a recession. At the moment, it looks like inflation may be on its way down. Um, The signs are good that the Fed has got a control of inflation. The next question, I think, is whether there's going to be a recession. Now, people have been predicting a recession now for some time, and it hasn't arrived. The consumer has kept spending, and the labor market has remained tight. Um, Things that can, you know, suggest continued economic growth. But there's a couple of things in play, though. Raising interest rates works with a lag. So, you know, you put up interest rates now, and the effects are not immediate on the economy. The effects are down the road. And those are uncertain. The second thing is the banking system has taken a wobble. And, you know, the one of the effects of increased interest rates is not just directly uh, having an effect on the economy and cooling it, but having a secondary effect that it can hurt certain banks. And so that's led to the wobbles in the banking sector we've seen recently. Time-wise, 
you had the economy and the markets kind of working together almost as an overlay. As decades went on, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you kind of see the economy and the financial markets almost operate distinctly, but then also together. Talk about what we're watching right now in the financial markets, especially as it relates to, you talked banking, you talked inflation, a lot of what is on people's minds right now is the debt limit, the debt ceiling, all of these talks out in Washington. Talk for a little bit about what you're seeing with that and how it has the potential to affect or not affect what we're following there in the markets. Yeah. So there isn't a, a direct relationship between the economy and the market. So, you know, if you plot, for example, recessions and you plot markets, you see there's a relationship, but it's not recession hits, markets go down. Markets respond to what they're expecting. So if there's a recession they think coming, they will fall in advance of that. The debt limit throws yet another source of uncertainty into this. So a couple of things on the debt limit. You know, people can have reasonable different opinions on the long-term trajectory of U.S. debt and whether it, you know, how high it can go, what the balance of tax and spending is to, to get us to a sustainable path. There are very different opinions on that. But the debt limit is about an immediate issue. Can the U.S. pay back bondholders or does it have to take a pause in that? That matters. There are unpredictable effects on the economy. And again, I'm going to throw in the word unprecedented, and it is <laughs> unprecedented. The U.S. has not defaulted on its debt before. It's, in a sense, voluntary. There is no reason the U.S. has to default on its debt. It, it is payable. The government can continue. The debt uh, that can be paid. But there's a lot of brinksmanship here, as we're seeing. You know, so there's uh, President Biden, there's Congress. Are they going to come to agreement where potentially defaults will start? You know, they always have in the past. 2011 was an example where they got pretty close to this and, you know, made an agreement at the last minute. I think the expectation is there will be an agreement because it's in nobody's interests for the US to default on its debt. So we're not yet seeing the big wobbles in stock markets that, you know, signal great concern about this. Although I think it's likely that if this continues, markets will reflect this. Um, on the bond markets, you are starting to see this. So, you know, people that have this direct exposure, especially to, to treasury bills and bonds that mature June, July, August, there is a concern that they could be a short-term period where they're not paid. So you're seeing some things there. But again, I think the consensus is that they're going to have to sort this out. Um, you know, the stakes are too high, but never say never. A lot of clients that I talk to, they see what happens in the economy. They see the news. They, they kind of are dealing with what they're dealing with in their own lives. Those conversations tend towards the, should I raise cash? Should I sit yeah. or in money markets? You know, what, what do we need to be doing? There's, so there's this rush. What would you say to the people who want to sell and have larger percentages in cash? Or what would you say directly to people who are saying, I'm done, get me out of the market. I just want to, quote unquote, sit in cash on the sidelines. And before you answer, I think those are two different questions and two different people, right? Yeah. I, I do think One's for people, timers. right, one is market yeah. timers and one are people who are looking at maybe the bond component, the fixed income component of their portfolio and saying, 
well, I can actually do better just by putting my money in a money market fund. Or even a third component where, hey, they're probably realizing maybe I should never have been an investor in the first place. So for, you know, they chase returns for those folks. So you got three camps, right? Yeah, we do. But, but, you know, what are you seeing on your side quantitatively and, and qualitatively that you would respond to them? Yeah, I mean, first, I um, I understand the feeling there, right? You know, you've got markets having in 2022 taken a big fall, both bonds and equities. And now what you're seeing is, you know, a CD at your bank can offer north of 5%, right? So, yeah. you know, you look at this and you say, I've been stung. Look, I can get this money in. So there's a couple of points on this. Um, and a point of the returns, I just note that the, the rate that offering sounds attractive, but it barely equals inflation. So in terms of real spending, you're sort of freezing it. You're not getting a great return. So let's just get that sort of just, you know, fact out of the way there. Now, I think you have to think about what money, uh, you know, why you would hold cash rather than invest, right? And there is a role for cash, right? So, you know, things in markets can go wrong. You might lose your job as well. So um, there's all sorts of things that can happen in life. And it's good to have a pot of cash to be able to handle those. And again, talk to your planner about your situation and how much cash you could need. So that's actually cash as an instrument to help you um, weather short-term setbacks, right? So that's one thing. The second is, um, should I just try and time markets here, right? So I think cash is good right now. I'm going to wait out the markets, and I think I will then move it into the markets. And the important thing here, I would say, is to be a forward-looking thinker. It's tempting, very tempting, to look at the past and say, look, this was bad. I'm going to sit this out. Um, I'm going to buy the dip. Our research suggests that if you look at somebody who's done this historically, so we did a study of this since 2000, people who try and do this, so they will hold money, you know, look for the market to go down, buy at the low, and, you know, and then they hold on to it then. The results are those people do worse than people who stick to a rule that they contribute a certain amount when they can each month and grow their balances that way. Now, it is disheartening to see that sometimes you put money in and it will fall. But over the long term, history suggests it will tend to grow more if you have a disciplined strategy. And that means don't sit on cash too much because if you miss out a few big days in the market, you're actually going to miss out most of what contributes to market returns. It's Um, a very important point, Neil. I mean, I do think we need to remind people that past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But but over the long term, historically, markets do tend to go up. Exactly, exactly. And it's extraordinarily difficult to predict the way in which they're going to go up. Markets have had a decent run this year. Does that mean they're going to continue up? I don't know. But if you had sat in cash, having watched 2022 happen, you've already missed out on return for a half a year. So yeah, past performance doesn't guarantee it. But um, you know, our research suggests a disciplined strategy of contribution will help you do better than either sitting out and you know, being fearful of getting back into the market or trying to time it. So I think, Andy, that covers your, your three types of people. There. Absolutely. It's a good point, Neil. We will absolutely have to have you back in short order. And um, yep. thank you so much for being with us today. 
A pleasure. It's been fun being on the show. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And that is it for this show. I want to thank you too, Andy, for being here as always, sharing your insights and your valuable help. I hope you will all be sure to subscribe to Everyday Wealth wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or visit us on everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks for listening and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.